Hi, I'm Savannah and welcome back to Basic Contract Law for Students. Last episode, it was mentioned that a valid contract is offer, acceptance, and consideration. This episode focuses on the offer. Before we dive into it, we're going to do a quick vocabulary lesson. Very simple. The offerer or offeror is the person making the offer. They're extending the offer. An offeree is the person hearing it. The offeree is the person who will accept the offer or reject the offer. So what is an offer? I'm going to give you a wordy definition and then we'll break it down. The offer is an expression of a promise, undertaking, or commitment to enter into a bargain so made as to justify the other party to believe that their assent is invited and would conclude the bargain. You need a meeting of the minds. So what does that mean? The wording and context of the offer must make it clear to the offeree or the reasonable offeree, because right, we have an objective person standard, that the offeree's acceptance will bind the parties immediately without the offerer having the opportunity to make the final decision. So it has to be the offeree's final decision, not the offeror's final decision. If the offeror has the right to make the final decision, then it's not an offer, but an invitation to the supposed offeree, right? To negotiate or make an offer to the proposal person. So for example, person one says, make me an offer. That's not an offer, but a proposal or an invitation to the second person to make an offer. An offer must also have certain and definite terms, or at least enough of these essential terms so the court would know what to enforce, such as the identity of the parties, the identity of the subject matter, what are you making this contract about, the price to be paid, when you're paying it, or the nature of the work to be done. An offer also has to actually be communicated to the offeree. How can somebody accept your offer if you didn't actually make one? The offerer also stipulates the terms of acceptance. So reasonableness steps in when the offerer was not exact in specifying the manner of acceptance. So the objective test that we talked about last episode governs questions of if the method of acceptance was appropriate and effective. And this is done by procedural and substantive terms. So procedural terms comply with how the offerer wants the offeree to accept the offer. So for example, by mail or before 5 p.m. There's two types of procedural terms. There's exclusive, which is saying this is the only method by which to accept the offer. So this has to be made clear. Now there's also authorized procedural terms, which permits the offeree to use this method. So I'll give you an example. If I say, you must respond to this email to accept the offer, that's going to be an exclusive procedural term saying that you can only respond to this email to accept the offer. Now, if I say, please give me a text or a call, then you can accept it. That will be an authorized procedural term. There's also substantive terms. Substantive terms are what you're accepting. 
So this is usually going to be the money or the price to be paid. It could also be the duration of something. For example, if I say $500 for two weeks, that's what you're accepting, to do something for two weeks for $500. Or mow your lawn twice this month. What am I doing? I'm mowing your lawn. How many times? Twice. So those are substantive terms. So acceptance has to comply with both procedural and substantive terms. Otherwise, it's a counter offer. So if the offerer gives until 5 p.m. and then the offeree sends a message at 5.01, that's technically a counter offer because the offeree did not comply with the procedural terms. So a counter offer terminates the offeree's power of acceptance. This means that the original offer goes away and the offeree is putting a new offer on the table. The offeree cannot accept the original offer anymore. Even if they say that they'll now accept the original offer, it's still a counter offer. So for example, Nikki offers to sell Brandon her watch for 10 grand. This is our original offer. Brandon says that's too high of a price and he'll only pay $7,000. This is a counter offer, which means what? That his ability to accept the original offer goes away. So now Nikki says she's not going to sell it to him for that price, the $7,000. So that's rejection. Brandon now says he'll accept Nikki's original offer and buy the watch for 10 grand. This is a counter offer not acceptance of the original offer because his ability to do that went away when he made a counter offer. Then Nikki accepts the 10 grand. So she's actually accepted. So notice how I labeled every sentence. Nikki offers to sell her wristwatch for 10 grand. Original offer. He comes back and says seven. Counter offer. That's something that really helped me in tests was to label everything that was going on. It really helped me keep track of the transaction and the questions, and I was able to do really well, and it was a really good method for me. So I suggest doing that as well. Now, a mere inquiry does not terminate the offeree's power of acceptance. So it's different from a counteroffer because a counteroffer does terminate the offeree's power of acceptance. But a mere inquiry, the offeree can still accept the original offer even though he inquired about a different price. So what's an inquiry? An inquiry is a question. So for example, Billy offers to sell JJ a statue of his favorite rap artist for $700. That's an offer. JJ asks Billy if she'll take $650. That's an inquiry. Billy ignores JJ's question. JJ then decides that $700 is a reasonable price and he accepts Billy's offer, acceptance. JJ's acceptance will be effective because he merely inquired if Billy would accept less. He did not make a counter offer. So be very careful when you read questions on whether something is a counter offer or a mere inquiry because counter offers terminate an offeree's power of acceptance, whereas a mere inquiry does not. Moving into advertisements as offers. Advertisements are generally not 
offers because of the potential problem of oversubscription. Oversubscription means that too many people will accept the offer, but the offer doesn't have enough like items or service or whatever to provide to everyone that actually tries to accept the offer. So for example, Hope sends Jamie a catalog for clothes. Jamie sends Hope an order for a sweater. That's an offer. Hope sends the sweater and under UCC 2206, that is gonna be acceptance. However, price quotations may be considered offers if given in response to a specific inquiry. So let's give an example. So Jamie asked Hope how much it would cost for a specific sweater. Hope then sends the catalog to Jamie. That is now an offer. Then Jamie sends Hope an order for the sweater. That's acceptance. Now an exception to advertisements as offers when they can become offers is the advertisement is clear definite and leaves nothing open for negotiation. This makes the advertisement an offer. To be an offer, there needs to be words of limitation, which means that you are limiting the amount of acceptances, which takes care of the oversubscription problem. So for example, the first 20 people get a shirt. That limits the amounts of shirts that the offerer is gonna give out and they have successfully negated the problem of oversubscription. But if the ad says, first come, first served, then the ad has not negated the problem of oversubscription because it's not clear how many have to quote unquote, first come to be first served. So general rule is advertisements are not offers because of oversubscription. But if a person specifically asks for a price quote and then you send them the catalog, that is going to be the offer, the sending of the catalog. An exception to when ads do become offers is when the advertisement is clear, definite, and leaves nothing open for negotiation. Now, rewards as offers. Rewards require awareness of the offeree to accept. So the offeree has to actually be aware of the offer because you can't accept something that you aren't even aware of. So if the person becomes aware of the offer, after they've already performed, then they can't accept the reward. And I believe there is a case about this in your casebook. I'll give an example. A woman loses her cat and puts up a sign on the corner offering a reward of $100 to anyone who finds her cat and brings it to her. A man does not see the posting, but finds a cat and takes it to the address on the collar. The woman is very thankful to have her cat back. The man leaves, and down the street, he sees the posting for the reward. He goes back to the woman's house, telling her that he has accepted her offer, but the woman refuses to pay. Who wins? The woman will win, because the man did not know of her offer when he performed. He gave her her cat, then found out about the offer, and that's not going to count. Note that this example could also fall under unilateral contracts, which we will cover here in just a few minutes. But in knowing of the offer of reward, the posting said $100 to anyone who finds her cat and brings it to her. The person would have to find the cat and bring it to the woman to accept the reward. 
This also means that once a person begins performance, that reward offer cannot be revoked for a reasonable time to allow the person to complete performance to accept the offer. Now, when does an offer expire? An acronym I heard from one of my study group friends is an offer expires when it gets tired. T, time lapse. I, incapacity or death. R, rejection. E, expressly revoked. D, destruction of subject matter. So T, time lapse. Unless otherwise stated, it's only open for a reasonable time, the offer. So if I offer to sell you my car and five years later you come to me saying I accept, well, that's too late, buddy, because the offer is definitely gone now. Now, I, incapacity or death, this works for either party, whether the offeror dies or the offeree dies. Now, there is an exception to that, and we'll get into that in just a second. Now, rejection and express revocation, those are pretty obvious, but destruction of subject matter means like the car blew up so I can't sell it to you now. Let's go into the effects of mental incapacitation on the offer. An offer may also terminate before a stated time or a reasonable time before the acceptance is expired. If the offeror dies or becomes mentally incapacitated before the offer is accepted, so even if the offeree had no knowledge or reason to know of the death or the disability, it can terminate. The reason behind this is that the offeror lost the ability to form a contractual intent before the offeree could accept it. So there is an exception to this. And this is the same exception I was thinking of back in incapacity or death. It's called an option contract. It's like a second contract. The offer is open for a certain amount of time, which is going to be whatever time the party stated, so that the offeree can still accept. So even if the offerer dies during that time or becomes mentally incapacitated, they were aware at the beginning of the option contract that the offeree had until X day to accept this offer. So option contracts are going to be an exception to mental incapacitation or incapacity or death. So terminating offers. Rejection can be direct or indirect and reliable communication. Indirect would have to come from a reliable source. So I said indirect and reliable communication, right? So the indirect communication needs to come from a reliable source. For example, if I'm buying a house and the real estate agent tells me, the buyer, that the seller no longer wishes to sell, then that's a reliable source. Now, if my friend down the street tells me that, that might not be a reliable source. An offer is not revoked by an offerer selling to someone else the goods that they had offered to the offeree unless the sale is communicated to the offeree before her acceptance. So revocation of an offer needs to be communicated to the offeree. So that means if I try to sell you something, we'll say some flashcards, and then you have not accepted it yet, and I go sell those flashcards to somebody else, I would need to tell you that I sold the flashcards to somebody else. Otherwise, 
if you just walk up to me and you're like, hey, I would like those flashcards now, and I haven't told you that I already sold them, then I'm still supposed to provide them for you because you and I still have a contract and I have not communicated that revocation of my offer to you. But there are restrictions on the right to revoke. So I remember these as you owe me, like you owe me like an IOU type situation. You, like the letter U, O, M, E. These things make an offer irrevocable. So you, unilateral contract, O, option contract, M, merchant firm offer, and E, estoppel, which is permissory estoppel. So you, unilateral acceptance by complete performance only. That's what a unilateral contract is. So the offerer must allow the offeree a reasonable time to complete the contract if the offeree begins. So for example, I offer you $20 to mow my lawn. If it takes you 10 days to mow my lawn, that's an unreasonable amount of time and I can revoke my offer. But if you begin to mow my lawn, I can't walk outside after you've mowed a third of my lawn and then tell you that I'm revoking my offer. Because that could open it up to a whole other issue. For example, I tell another neighbor kid that I'll offer him 20 bucks to mow it and then he mows another third of my lawn. And I keep doing this until my entire lawn is mowed and I didn't actually have to pay anybody $20. So that's unfair and the rule is that the offer is irrevocable for a reasonable amount of time once the offering has begun. So when you start, I have to give you a reasonable amount of time to finish. So that's a unilateral contract. Acceptance by complete performance only. So the offering can only accept by completing the performance. Now, O, option contracts. Option contracts are a promise to keep an offer open, which is supported by consideration. So this is a contract in itself. That's why it has to have consideration. It's like a second contract. So mere recital of consideration or purported consideration may suffice to create an option. This basically means that there's relaxed consideration in options. It can be nominal consideration. So you don't actually have to buy them lunch, just promise to buy them lunch, and that's going to count as consideration. Even if the offeree rejects the offer or makes a counter offer, the original offer will remain until the stated time of the option contract's expiration. So if we say, I'm going to leave this option for you to buy a car open until Saturday, then during that time period, between today and Saturday, we might have a bunch of counter offers, but that doesn't matter because you can still accept my original offer before Saturday. That's what the option contract does. So even if you make counter offers or even if you reject the offer, you still have till Saturday to come back and say, just kidding, I want to accept. Now an exception to this is that during this option time period till Saturday, the offeree rejects the offer and the offerer reasonably relies on that rejection. So now there's no longer an option. 
So if you like you said you didn't want it and would never want it, so I sold it. That's going to be reasonable reliance. Now M, merchant firm offer. This is a UCC thing. So remember last episode we talked about common law versus the UCC. So UCC we said governs goods. So let's define some things for the UCC. The UCC defines goods to mean all things, including specially manufactured goods, which are movable at the time of identification to the contract for sale. So anything that's movable. Now the UCC also talks about merchants because merchants are selling goods, right? So there's two types of merchants. There's a merchant in the narrow sense and a merchant in the broad sense. A merchant in the narrow sense is a person who deals in goods of the kind involved in the transaction. He routinely buys and sells them. Now, a merchant in the broad sense is one who may not deal in goods of the kind, but who, by their occupation, a reasonable person would recognize as having skill or knowledge. Peculiar to either the goods or practices involved in the transaction. So the merchant in the narrow sense becomes especially important when we talk about the implied warranty of merchantability. A merchant in the narrow sense example would be Apple. Apple buys and sells phones. They are involved in deals with goods of the kind for phones. So they would be a merchant of phones in the narrow sense. Now, merchant in the broad sense would be more like someone who works in the electronics department at Walmart. They might not routinely buy and sell phones per se, but most people would think that the person working there in the electronics department at Walmart has some sort of knowledge about these phones that they're selling, or about the headphones, or whatever else in the electronics department. So back to merchant firm offer. Now that we know what a merchant is, so because it's a merchant firm offer, you have to have at least one merchant. One of the parties needs to be a merchant, and it's enforceable without consideration. A merchant firm or a merchant firm offer is enforceable without consideration. So there's four things that are important for a merchant firm offer. First is it's the UCC, so it has to be governing the sale of goods. Second is it's signed by the merchant. So if the offeree wants a merchant firm offer, then the offerer, the merchant, must sign it. Third is writing. Fourth is assurance, assuring you that they're going to keep it open. This offer. So the way I remember those four things is. Either the United States Women's Athletics (USWA) or switch the letters around and it's USAW (USAW). So UCC goods signed writing assurance. A merchant firm offer is open for a reasonable amount of time that cannot exceed three months. So if the offeror promises to keep it open for more than three months. Then you'll have to have more consideration for that extra time. So the first three months would be irrevocable because this is a firm offer, but the latter three months, if it's going to be a six-month thing, 
then these latter three months are revocable unless the consideration is provided. So for example, I'm a merchant, you're the buyer. I say I'm going to sell you this car and you have four months to come back and accept my offer. And I sign it, you know, whatever. We have our merchant firm offer. So for those first three months, it is irrevocable. I cannot revoke my offer for those first three months, but this is governing four months, right? So that last month, my offer is revocable because a merchant firm offer can't really go past three months. Both of us would have to provide some sort of consideration there, or I can just revoke my offer after that three-month mark. An important thing to note is that the mailbox rule, which we'll go over later, does not apply to options or firm offers. The offeree in either of those cases doesn't need the assurance of the mailbox rule because it's already open for three months. So you already have three months to accept this offer. So you should be able to send a letter and have it received in that amount of time. So you don't need the mailbox rule protection. Also, beware that a professional painter could be a merchant, but a contract to paint would be a service and under common law, not the UCC. Fourth, estoppel, so promissory estoppel, is the foreseeable reliance before contracting. So you have reason to know that the offer is relied on. To come to equity, you must come with clean hands, which means if I want any sort of remedy, then I have to have clean hands. I can't have made these dirty deals or whatever. So reliance wouldn't be reasonable if I had reason to know that there's a mistake. So if I had reason to know there's a mistake, then that would not be clean hands. So promissory estoppel is basically just a promise made with the expectation to induce reliance. And we'll get farther into promissory estoppel in another episode. So you're especially going to see promissory estoppel and this it makes an offer irrevocable with contractors. And I don't mean contractors as, oh, offer, acceptance, whatever. I mean like building contractors. So for example, a subcontractor submits a bid for $1.5 million. Another subcontractor submits a bid for $5 million, another for $6.1, and another for $7 million. So 5, 6.1, and 7 are all kind of around the same, but the 1.5 million is much lower than all the others. So it's pretty likely that there's a mistake, and I would have reason to know of the mistake just by looking at all of these different bids. Now, if the general contractor still accepts this low bid, this 1.5 million, then the builder has the defense of unilateral mistake which will be next semester. But basically, a unilateral mistake is where the non-mistaken party either knew or should have known of the mistake. But here, with our 1.5 and 5, 6.1, million, the general contractor would have a reason to know of a mistake. So if the general contractor is relying on it anyway, even though they have 
reason to know of this mistake. Then the subcontractor has grounds to avoid the contract. So they can say, just kidding, I made a mistake, sorry. And because the general contractor had reason to know of that mistake, then that's okay and we can just say, we can all just say, just kidding. So typically, if one of the parties entering into the contract is mistaken about facts related to the agreement, that unilateral mistake won't prevent the formation of a contract. However, if the non-mistaken party is aware of the mistake or had reason to know of the mistake that was made by the other party, then the contract is voidable by the party who made the mistake. So for example, if I come to your house and I see a Picasso on your wall and I like it so much that later I offer to buy from you, you accept my offer, but then you end up delivering a different Picasso. Unbeknownst to me, you had a second Picasso in your basement that I didn't see because you never took me to your basement. So I thought we were contracting for the Picasso that was upstairs. You should know that since you know you never took me downstairs. So I would have no reason to know of this second Picasso. So you have a reason to know of which Picasso I was talking about. There's one example. A second example is the ship peerless. Now this was in my contracts casebook last year and was on our comp. There was a contract for a shipment of cotton that would be delivered on the ship peerless. However, there were two ships named peerless. The shipping company thought the person was contracting for the ship arriving in December while the person was thinking about the one coming in October. Since the person didn't get their stuff from the ship in October, they were like, what the heck? And that's how the parties found out that they each meant different ships. The court held in the peerless case that because there was no quote unquote meeting of the minds, there was no contract. This was also called rescission. So remember our definition of an offer? There has to be a meeting of the minds. So because in the ship peerless, oh, I didn't know you meant October. I didn't know you meant December. Their minds didn't meet. And thus, there's no offer technically. So there's no contract. They rescinded it. Rescission. And that's going to be an important word this semester and next. So unilateral rescission happens when one of the parties wants to rescind the contract. So like take it back but the other party refuses to agree. So for unilateral rescission to actually be granted, the party that wants it must have adequate legal grounds, obviously. One ground of unilateral rescission is mutual mistake of a material fact. And we'll get into unilateral and mutual mistake next semester. So quick run through of the offer and everything we've gone over this episode. An offer needs a meeting of the minds and a offeree must be the one who can conclude the bargain. We also said the offerer stipulates the terms of acceptance. We went over procedural and substantive terms, counteroffer versus mere inquiry, advertisements as offers, rewards as offers, we said, when does an offer expire, which is when it gets tired, time lapse, incapacity or death, rejection, expressly revoked, 
destruction of subject matter. We talked about effects of mental incapacitation on the offer, terminating offers. And then we also talked about under that terminating offers, when an offer is irrevocable. And our acronym for that was UOME, unilateral option contracts, merchant firm offers, and promissory estoppel. I'm Savannah, and thank you for listening to Basic Contract Law for Students.